This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and this is the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help parents raise independent, self-sufficient kids without sacrificing their own identity and sense of purpose. I'm here to share practical day-to-day solutions for raising kind, successful, well-adjusted human beings, and actionable advice for supporting systemic changes so we can make this world a more inclusive, accepting place now and for future generations. everybody, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 58 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast. In this episode, I am going to talk about how to support neurodivergence without being ableist. So this is a topic that I've been wanting to cover for a long time, but it really took a lot of reflection on my part when it comes to navigating all the information out there and also just really taking a look at a number of things. The research, my own personal experiences as a neurodivergent, my experiences as a parent, and also my clinical experiences. I wanted to revisit this topic because I get a ton of questions about it because I have a lot of people in my audience who are therapists, teachers, or parents of kids, and they just want to know, how do I help these kids to grow up to be well-adjusted, healthy, happy, successful people? And I am, quite frankly, appalled at the amount of misinformation out there. And it's getting very convoluted. There are a lot of therapists I know that are in my audience that are so afraid of being accused of being ableist. And as a result, it's really hard for them to support the kids on their caseloads. And I see this in parenting groups as well. And I just hate to see people struggling 
because all this is going to do is create more stress and trauma for kids. And I think that that's really the conversation that we're talking about here is how to support kids and help them feel safe and secure so that they can learn the skills that they need to to learn in order to be successful adults one day. So I wanted to really dive into this topic and talk about how my approach to working with kids who have academic issues are very different than social problem-solving issues. And really, I'll be answering a lot of the questions that have been coming up recently from my readers, which is just, what am I supposed to be doing? And how do I actually support these kids? What does it mean to be neurodiversity affirming? What is a child-led intervention look like? And is that even the best thing to be doing for a child? So I'll be getting into all of those topics in this episode. And I will be starting off with the difference, again, between a curriculum that's designed for a student with academic versus social language issues. So I will be talking about my specific curriculum that I would use for both of those things. So I will be mentioning two of my programs. One of them is Language Therapy Advanced Foundations, which gives speech pathologists a framework for improving language processing that focuses on vocabulary and word study. And then I'll also be talking about my social language roadmap program, which again is very different because it focuses on social problem solving. So to get more information about Language Therapy Advanced Foundations, you're going to want to go to drkarenspeech.com backslash language foundations. Again, that's drkarenspeech.com backslash language foundations. And again, this is more focused on academics, building the language that supports reading comprehension and writing and vocabulary and literacy. And then to get more information about the social language roadmap, which is more focused on the social problem-solving skills to support students, then you're going to want to go to drkarenspeech.com backslash social language. Again, that's drkarenspeech.com backslash social language. So now let's get into the episode. So the first thing that I wanted to talk about was the difference between handling academic language issues versus social language issues. So I have a lot of speech pathologists in my audience, but I know that I also have a lot of parents and teachers as well. So I do come from the lens of a therapist But I think that these questions will be very helpful for anyone involved because it does help to understand all the pieces and how they fit together, regardless of what your role is in the process. So because I do have a lot of speech pathologists in my audience, a lot of times people will ask me for actual therapy materials. The therapists typically want to know, what do I actually do in my therapy session to support students across all of their settings. So when it comes to academic language, you can actually address that very well in what's known as a pullout setting, which means, for example, kids are in class, you pull them out and you do a therapy session with a one-on-one situation or maybe a small group of kids where you're teaching a specific academic skill. That is very effective 
And that works really well when you're working on things like vocabulary, syntax, and grammar, morphology, which is getting into prefixes and suffixes. All of those things can be done very effectively in a pullout situation. And I know that there are a lot of speech pathologists, special education teachers that are getting pressured to what's, do what's known as push in where they're co-teaching in a classroom. That can work. But a lot of times people assume, oh, well, you should be teaching these skills in a classroom because that's more functional. Well, that's not always the case for academic skills because sometimes kids need more intensity and attention. So it actually does work better in some cases to teach those skills in kind of a pullout setting. So that's why when I am mentoring SLPs and I'm teaching them how to address language processing, a lot of those issues are coming from problems with students not having well-developed vocabulary skills or not having the metacognitive skills to be able to look at a text and be able to infer meanings of words. They also might not have the ability to understand how sentences are put together, and that can cause a ton of comprehension breakdowns. And in order to address that, kids need some very specific practice with specific sentence structures. And in a large classroom, it can be really hard to give kids the attention that they need on those skills to be able to make progress. So that's why when I am showing SLPs what to do in order to address those types of things, I am giving very specific things that can be done in a therapy setting. And that involves worksheets, it can involve protocols. So there's a lot of the curriculum that I would teach in, for example, my Language Therapy Advanced Foundations course, where I'm leading SLPs through a specific framework for addressing language processing, that is heavily emphasized. The The curriculum for that program really emphasizes what the SLP should be doing in therapy. Now, of course, part of this process is helping them to understand what are all the pieces that kids need in order to work on these language processing skills. So part of that is what they do in therapy, and part of that is some consultation and collaboration with perhaps some teachers or special education staff, reading specialists to consult with them and make sure that that student is getting what they need across the board. It's not all about what the SLP is doing in their therapy because it is a team approach, but there is a heavy emphasis on what the SLP is actually doing in their therapy sessions. So when SLPs come through that particular program, a lot of them are not necessarily surprised about the focus of that particular curriculum because they're expecting to come into the course and learn, what do I do in therapy? And so it's it's something that they would typically expect. Now, with my other program, the Social Language Roadmap, it's very different. So I have had some people go through Language Therapy Advanced Foundations and learn my process for addressing those academic issues, and then come through Social Language Roadmap and feel a little bit confused or taken off guard because there's a very different feeling to how the curriculum is laid out. This is because working on academic issues is very different than working on social problem solving because it's actually not very effective to just focus on a pullout situation and just be teaching social skills in a, in again, a therapy 
situation. A lot of times people will say, what do I do in therapy? What social narrative scripts can I be using to work on on pragmatic language is, is the term that they typically use when they're talking about social skills. So how do I work on that in therapy? And they want the materials and they want the protocol for therapy. And really it's focused on what do I do in therapy? <laughs> Again, as I've said before, well, the problem is, is that if you just do that and you just focus on the materials, the goals that you're writing and just what you do when that student is being pulled out of the classroom to work with you, that is not going to work for social problem solving. It needs to be done across settings and it needs to be very functional, meaning that you need to practice those skills in context. Now, with academic skills, that can be true as well, but you can actually make up a lot more ground with academic skills and more of a structured pullout situation than you can with social skills. There is a component of actually working on some of the social skills in a pullout situation because sometimes you might need to do some priming to prepare them for something that's coming up in their environment. But in order for that to be effective at all, there really has to be an emphasis on figuring out how to provide support in the actual situation where that skill is happening and where that student needs to apply the skill. Otherwise, it's not going to be very effective. So there is really less of an emphasis on what's the curriculum that I do with my students in therapy. And there's more of an emphasis on how do I build the skills and provide supports in the actual setting where the student is applying that skill. And so there's more of an emphasis on consultation and providing supports across settings. And yes, there are some strategies that you can do in therapy, but if you're just focusing on that, it is not going to work. So that is why it's very different because, again, it's a social skill and it is not something that is going to be learned solely from a pullout situation. So that is why the, the whole process that I would teach for social skills is so different than academic skills. And I think that this can get very confusing for therapists because a lot of times they're thinking for the academic stuff, oh, I need to be doing this in all these functional settings. Well, you you actually can make a big difference by working on it in a very structured setting. But again, for social skills, that's not the case. It does need to be more applied. It does need to be more functional because, for example, if you are wanting to help a student to understand how to interact with their peers at recess or in the lunchroom or, or even in the classroom during those unstructured times, well, they actually have to practice that skill during those unstructured times. Or if you're working on helping a student to figure out how to how to navigate their morning routine in their classroom and they're getting off task and they're doing things that they're not supposed to be doing, well, well, that student actually needs to have support during that setting. So yes, there are some things that you can do in therapy to prime them, but you do need to have some supports in that particular situation for it to actually work, which means that there needs to be a lot of consultation with the teacher and you need to be on board with the strategies that you are using. So that is why I focus more on figuring out how to get those things applied across the situation when it's social problem solving versus a more academic kind of a situation where it's more focused on here's an activity that you can do with your students in therapy. So now I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about the 
rationale behind the the process that I chose to go over in the Social Language Roadmap course to actually lead you through how do we support these students. So the framework that I used was heavily influenced by a process that was written by a man named Scott Bellini. I actually came across this process when I was teaching a course on autism for graduate students who were getting prepared for special education. So there were a lot of special education teachers who were getting a special ed master's. There were actually a lot of nursing students who wanted to get an emphasis in special ed. So it was focused on autism. And what I really liked about Bellini's framework was that initially when I started to learn about what I would refer to as pragmatic language intervention, which is teaching social skills, is that initially it was a lot about learning the rules and this is the right way to do things and do this, not that kind of a thing. And it never really worked very well for me when I was working with students that would get a lot of resistance. There wasn't a lot of motivation for them to participate. And I always felt like it, it just felt very awkward and students couldn't really apply it, partially because, again, I was teaching it primarily in a pullout situation, but also it just felt so forced and not very meaningful. And it almost felt like I was coming back to, this is the way that we do things around here because this is the right way to do things. And just kind of like... uh like, I'm the mom, that's why, sort of a rationale, which doesn't feel very good. And so I I always had a problem with that. And, and I know that when I was initially working with students in the school systems, I had a lot of goals on eye contact. And, and again, it always felt very forced and awkward. And it, it seemed to almost get away from the the purpose, which was that we were so fixated on these certain behaviors that were deemed to be appropriate that students weren't really successful. Because again, we were fixating on things that didn't seem to make that much difference in the long run. And Bellini's framework was one of the first things that really helped pinpoint or why it just felt so unsettling to work on some of these things with autistic students or or other students who needed some support in social problem solving. So one of the things that is emphasized in the framework is really the process that needs to happen in order for people to be able to problem solve and read situations. Now, a lot of the approaches that I saw and a lot of the pre-made materials for SLPs, for example, just focused a lot on what do we do in this situation? Here's what we do. Here's this checklist of appropriate behaviors. It didn't focus on what was going on internally. But Bellini's framework was what helped me make that shift to the whole thing that's going on. Not just doing, but thinking, feeling, and doing. Because a lot of times, if if kids are not feeling successful in certain situations, they are experiencing some kind of emotional response, that's helping them to build beliefs about that certain situation. And that creates certain feelings about that situation. And then that affects what they're doing in those situations. So if we don't think about all of those things that are going on, and we're just focusing on the external behaviors that we're seeing, it can be hard to figure out how to support students because we're not considering the big picture. So that is one of the first shifts that I made was thinking about all three of those things, thinking, feeling, doing. And so that is one of the premises of the framework that that I teach. And that is one of the biggest shifts that people need to make. 
Because again, if you're just focusing on telling students what to do and just having them memorize and not having them think about the situation, you're not actually teaching them to problem solve and you're not actually teaching them to know how to apply those skills across settings. So that is the first shift and that is one of the reasons why I teach that particular framework. And then the second thing that I liked about it is that when I would be teaching things like eye contact, for example, it it felt very much like we were missing the forest for the trees. And the shift that made things much more effective for me and made things make sense was rather than looking at these isolated behaviors, looking at them in categories of social behavior. And there are actually six categories that we need to look at in order to categorize why students are doing what they're doing to figure out how do we actually diagnose where the student needs support and then figure out how to plan our interventions around those areas. Otherwise, if we don't categorize things, we're just targeting random behaviors and it doesn't really make sense. One example that I often give is eye contact and because that's something that people tend to fixate on because it's it's obvious. And when we focus on eye contact alone without thinking about what's the broader category where students might need some work, then we are missing out on all of these other things that the student might need support in doing. So with eye contact specifically, if someone is not making eye contact, oftentimes, again, the reason that we make eye contact, and again, I know that there are cultural expectations at play here, but one of the reasons why people make eye contact is because you want to give the listener a nonverbal cue that you're paying attention to them. And then also what eye contact does is that it shows people that you are talking to them. So again, it's a nonverbal cue that we use in order to indicate that we're listening or that we're wanting to get someone's attention. So if someone isn't making eye contact or not paying attention to other people's eye contact, it's because they aren't paying attention to nonverbal behaviors. And chances are, if they're not making eye contact and they're not paying attention to that, they're also not paying attention to other nonverbal behaviors, which means that they're missing information and then they might not be giving that information to the other people that they're interacting with. So we need to think about it more as a broader category of nonverbal behaviors and nonverbal problem solving rather than just we're going to fixate on eye contact. And again, there are there are six total behaviors that we want to focus on, which is what I go through in the program. But that is just one example of how we need to think about the big picture. Now, of course, the other issue with eye contact is that for autistic people, it can be really overstimulating. And um, again, when we make eye contact, it shows that we're listening. But if eye contact is so overstimulating that it makes you unable to listen and attend, then it might not be the best behavior to focus on. There might be other ways that we could teach someone to indicate that they're paying attention aside from eye contact. So that's another reason why it's not necessarily the best goal to track. So we need to pay attention to those things. But again, if you look at it in a bigger picture and think, okay, how can we teach this person to show other people that they're paying attention to them? What are some other options that we have here? Well, 
that opens the door a little bit more and can give us some more options as far as how to figure out the situation because that's really what we want people to be able to do. So we want to think about it from that perspective. And and that is, again, how we can avoid being ableist, because if we're insisting on things being done in this one certain way that doesn't work very well for that particular person, then again, that's that's kind of getting caught on, you know, neurotypical standards, for example, or things that people would do in a certain way. And, and yes, sometimes it does make sense to change the behavior that that autistic person is doing if what they're doing is not effective. But we want to figure out something that's going to help them be effective in that situation. When we focus more on how do we help this person be successful with, with what they want to do, then that is how we avoid the ableism. It doesn't mean that we just say, oh, okay, well, we're not going to have them change anything at all. Obviously, that wouldn't be helpful for them. We do need to encourage them to change some of those behaviors if what they're doing is not working. But thinking about it from a broader context of what are these categories where we can help them figure out these situations is a lot easier and a way that we can help them to be more successful. Because when we fixate on things have to be done a certain way, that's when things look kind of awkward and contrived. And we're focused more on just lecturing people about what they should be doing in certain situations, but not really giving them the tools to figure out when to apply them. So that is what I liked about this framework is that, again, it focuses on thinking, feeling, doing all of the things that are going on when you are in a social experience. And then it focuses on six different areas of social behaviors that we can use in order to figure out how do we support the students. Now, I will tell you that the initial framework when it was published, and actually some of the language that I use in the original course, is a bit deficit-focused because, again, it was published a while ago. And if I were to re-record the course, I would probably use different language. So for example, they're called the six categories of social impairment. I like to say, you know, the six categories of social problem solving or social behavior. I think that that sounds a little bit more accurate as far as what they actually are. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm going to throw out the framework. It still works. I have started making some updates to the language in certain places, but there are some videos that I published a while ago. Again, I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Just be aware that going forward, I would use different language, but the the original recordings and the videos, you can still use the framework. It still works. We just can think about the language a little bit differently. Another thing about the framework is that there isn't specific language such as saying things are child-led or neurodiversity affirming. But the framework itself is child-led in neurodiversity affirming and that it takes into account what is in the child's best interest. So making something child-led or neurodiversity affirming does not necessarily mean allowing the person to do whatever they want. Sometimes we do ask them to do things that they don't want to do. The way that we make it focused on the child is that we ask the child to do what is in their best interest, which sometimes means asking them to do things that might feel a little bit uncomfortable. Again, the way that we avoid being ableist is that the focus is on improving functioning. It's not meeting some arbitrary standards that have to do with, you know, again, 
I think this is the best way to do things. So this is the way that we have to do things. It's, it's about helping them improve functioning, having some flexibility in there about how that functioning looks. But at the same time, remember that there are certain behaviors. If someone is not making friends, if they're struggling socially, then there are certain behaviors that they will need to change in order to do that. It's not ableist to ask them to develop a skill that's going to help them in their future. So we want to think about that. We know that doing something that's out of your comfort zone, it's not something that we like to do all the time, but it is something that does help to build resilience. It helps to build perspective taking, and it also expands someone's options. And the more resilient someone is, that means that they can be more flexible, and that means that they will actually reduce trauma over time. If you have a lot of situations that you can't tolerate, then there are a lot of things that are going to be very traumatic for you. But if you develop strategies that will help you build relationships and navigate different situations, it's going to be less traumatic for you because you are going to be more well adjusted. One other thing to consider when you're thinking about social skills and building relationships, there are many times when you do have to, if you are interested in having a relationship with another person, you do have to modify your behaviors in order to think about how your behaviors affect other people. So that is another way that you can kind of problem solve this as a therapist. Because for example, if someone is exhibiting a certain behavior, let's say stimming, this is a very good example, because people have kind of spoken out and saying that goals to reduce stimming are ableist. And that can be the case if someone is stimming and it's not causing any problems for anybody, it's not bothering anybody, it is not preventing that person from doing something that they need to do. If it's not causing any problems and you just think it's weird, then there's not really any reason to change that behavior. We do need to make sure that our sensory needs are met. So if we just want to change something because it's not something that we would do, then that's not something that's going to be super helpful. But if someone is doing a certain behavior that is really bothersome and distracting to other people, that can impact their ability to form a relationship. That can have a negative impact on them. Or let's say that they're doing a certain behavior that is preventing them from doing something that's going to allow them to build a skill that is important to them and not having that skill is going to have a negative impact on their life. Well, in that case, then getting them to set something down and move to another task is something that will benefit them. So that would not be ableist to teach them to do something that is going to benefit them in the long run. If it's having a negative impact on them or someone else, then that is something that we want to consider changing. One example that has come up for me is I know that, you know, I work with a lot of people who are really concerned about their just caring for other people because, you know, therapists, it kind of attracts a lot of very nurturing people. And I had a particular scenario where I know that, you know, people have said to me, so I know that this person needs to have their sensory needs met, but their stimming and their movement is really distracting to me and the way that they're always interrupting me. It's it's really hard to interact with them. 
And I don't know if I should say something because I just, I feel bad. Well, I mean, that's sometimes a personal choice. If someone in your environment is is bothering you, you can always choose to not interact with them. But if you have a child and you notice that they are doing something that is bothersome to other people, then that could be beneficial in getting them to stop that behavior and be aware of how their behavior impacts others. Now, with all of these things, it's not about controlling them. It's about helping them to understand how what they do impacts other people. You can't control other people's behaviors. You can't even control your child's behavior. But what you can do is teach them to understand how what they do impacts other people, how what they do impacts themselves. And you can create some structure in the environment to hold them accountable. That is something that is going to reduce trauma over time because, again, it creates consistency and safety and helps to build those skills that kids need in order to be well-adjusted. I think with with people saying that things are child-led, that yes, of course, we want to be aware of kids' interests. We want to be aware of their needs, but it doesn't mean that we're letting kids run the show. That is actually not beneficial for them because kids need, in order to feel safe and secure, they need to know that the adults in their environment are in control because the adults are the ones with fully developed brains. It is not a safe environment to let a child run the show all the time. Doesn't mean that we are not paying attention to their needs and their interests. We can still be aware of that, but we need to be the ones that are controlling the environment and making the decisions because we are the ones that are providing that safety and security. So think about this. If you were going to have surgery and a surgeon came in and they were very wishy-washy and and wanted to negotiate with you, you would not feel very good about that. You want the person who is caring for you to have it under control. You would want the surgeon to be telling you, do this, do that. Now this is going to happen. And you'd want them to be very directive and that would actually make you feel better. I would not want somebody who's doing some kind of procedure and, and if I'm under their care, I would want to know that they're in control of the situation, that they know what they're doing. So kids need to feel this as well. In order for them to be well-adjusted, they need to have adults in their environment who are holding them accountable and are helping them navigate these challenging situations that they might not be navigating effectively. So when we do this from the lens of understanding what that child is thinking, feeling, and doing, and that also categorize those different behaviors in that situation. Again, they're called the six areas of social impairment, but I prefer to call them the six areas of social problem solving. When we organize things in that way, this is what helps us to help kids build skills. It's not about controlling them, but it is about holding them accountable and helping them understand how their behavior affects others. Again, this is not something that we can teach in a pullout situation that's very contrived. We do need to be able to provide kids support across settings so that they can apply those problem-solving skills in one setting and another setting. And, And again, just understanding how to read the room, read those situations, and form relationships effectively. I can attest as someone who is very socially awkward and did not have an easy time navigating friendships and social interactions. And honestly, I still get pretty overwhelmed in big group settings and things like that. 
it is certainly beneficial to teach someone skills to help them figure out how to how to just move through those situations successfully. So definitely something you want to do to prepare kids for adulthood. So this is what I cover in the Social Language Roadmap course. I do not use the language neurodiversity affirming, but again, as a neurodivergent adult, as a parent, as a person who's done a lot of research on this topic, and as a person who has applied these skills and these strategies in clinical practice, it is neurodiversity affirming and that it is teaching kids the skills that they need in order to have autonomy in those social situations and in order to develop skills that are going to help them to be effective. That's really what it's about. Again, being child-led and neurodiversity affirming is really about what does this child need and what is in the child's best interest. If you are doing something that is in someone's best interest, then you are affirming them, you are supporting them, and you're doing the right thing. That is how we move forward. We don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater with a lot of these interventions that have been done in the past. We just need to shift the focus a little bit. A lot of them still work. It's just that we need to understand more about, it's about functioning and being successful. It's not about being appropriate or normal. It's about how do we help this child do what they need to do and form the relationships that they need to form so that they can have a good life so that they can grow up to be a well-adjusted human being. So before we wrap up, obviously, if you want to learn more information about this process that I teach in the Social Language Roadmap course, it's primarily designed for SLPs, but it's definitely also appropriate for teachers, special education, professionals, other therapists. And again, if you're a parent and you want to have a better understanding of this process, you're welcome to check it out as well. To get more information about the course, just go to drkarenspeech.com backslash social language. And again, in the course, I talk about the framework that you can use to help kids to develop those social problem-solving skills. I also talk about some of the problems with some of the interventions that are out there, and I do really get into how to diagnose the area where a child needs support using those six categories that I mentioned, and I do explain what those categories are in the program. And if you want more information about what they are, I also share that on the sign-up page. But again, to check that out, go to drkarenspeech.com backslash social language. I did also talk about my Language Therapy Advanced Foundations program because I did talk about the difference between academic intervention versus social intervention. So if you're interested in that program, you can go to drkarenspeech.com backslash language foundations. And that is where I go through my framework for boosting language processing skills. Again, it's a framework that SLPs can use to address those language processing skills that impact academic skills like reading, writing, literacy, and all the things that you need to do in order to be successful in school. So thank you so much for listening and check out those programs if you are interested in learning more. And as I said before, if you found this useful, then definitely share it with anyone that you know, whether it be a teacher, another therapist, or a parent. I certainly appreciate you sharing this information with them. As always, thank you for listening, and I will see you in the next episode.
Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.